Of every hue and caste am I, of every rank and religion. A farmer, mechanic, artist, gentleman, sailor, Quaker, prisoner, fancy man, rowdy, lawyer, physician, priest. Do you not know how the buds beneath are folded, waiting in the gloom, protected by frost? Happiness, which whoever hears me, let him or her set out in search of this day. My final merit refuse you. I refuse putting from me the best I am. Encompass worlds, but never try to encompass me. I crowd your noisiest talk by looking toward you. Writing and talk do not prove me. I carry the plenum of proof and everything else in my face. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Emily and Isa about Whitman's Song of Myself. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt to help the rhythms of your poems attain some of Whitman's power. To begin with, a quote of the day from the preface of Whitman's Leaves of Grass, a preface which contains almost as much beauty and wisdom as the poems themselves. Whitman is addressing apprentice poets, giving them advice on how to become poets, and he says this, This is what you shall do. Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence toward the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul, and your very flesh shall be a great poem, and have the richest fluency not only in its words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. And for more from a poet who certainly loved the earth and the sun and the animals, let's go into that chat about Song of Myself with me and Emily and Isa. Hi, Isa. Hello, Michael. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm so good. I'm excited. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm excited too. Here's Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, Emily. What do I want to say? Um, I, I've loved all the poetry that we've read throughout this course, or else I wouldn't have assigned it, obviously. But to me, Whitman is something else. This poem is so beautiful and strange and full of awe that it feels almost at times superhuman. You know, it kind of feels not of this world. To me, it feels, I might start losing people here, scriptural or subscriptural at least. You know what I mean? It's a kind of poem that makes me totally speechless and I can't rationally describe. It's like being in the presence of, I don't know, you know, when you're, if you know, you know, when you hike Bryce Canyon and it's evening and you're like up on the, the some ridge and you see this vast cathedral of red rock stretching out in front of you for miles and miles. And it's, I don't know, evening. So the Milky Way is like falling down, pouring itself right into you. You feel terrified and exhilarated and totally speechless and breathless. That's what this poem is to me. It's a total force of nature. It's a total miracle. Now, not everyone is going to share my enthusiasm, of course, for this poet or for or for any text that I assign, which is totally fine. I just wanted to put my uh, 
enthusiasm on the record and to say that very much like anything divine or profound or expansive or sublime, it it by definition surpasses description. You know, I, in the course of this conversation or in the class when we meet, I will not be able to fully articulate why I think Whitman is so beautiful. It's like trying to explain why a joke is funny or why love feels good or why beautiful things are beautiful. You can kind of talk around it in the margins. You can you can try. And of course, we should try. And that's why we're, we're gathered here today, to, to give it our best shot. This doesn't really explain the magic trick or the miracle. You know, nobody knows how water is turned into wine. Nobody knows how a sublime work of art becomes a sublime work of art. I'm almost done here. I just also wanted to say, <clears throat> he's kind of old. He's an old poet. Why am I assigning him? I fully believe that in each of you, Isa, Emily, people listening, is the potential to become a great poet. I mean, I really believe that. No great poet ever became a great poet without trying to become a great poet, if that doesn't sound too awkward. So I wanted to assign some great capital G, lasting capital L poems to kind of establish this is this is the high jump record. You know, let's try to aim at it. We will fail the first 10,000 times we try to aim at this, but with enough effort, who knows? You know, you certainly won't ever succeed unless you try. That's my opinion. So you really have nothing to lose. You know, if you don't try to be as great or lasting as your favorite poets, you won't be as great or lasting. And if you do, you might fail for a long time, but the chances maybe, who knows, maybe you'll succeed. So the only way to succeed is to try and to try and to try. That's my opinion. Okay. It's called Song of Myself, of course, but it's clear that, I think it's clear, that it's an extremely democratic poem. That's why it's an important uh, touchstone of American poetry. It's about all, certainly all Americans, but I think all humans everywhere. How do you think, how would you answer this question? How do you think he achieves such a universal scope inside of a poem that so, we might think, arrogantly announces its subject as Song of Myself? How is this poem about you? What would you say? The first thing I'd say is that I feel like when I'm reading Whitman, at least this piece in particular, he makes his musicality just sound like natural stream of thought. And you know that this man has been writing for a long time. So it's almost like his stream of thought is already inherently poetic. And the way that he thinks about the world, he just unleashes all of his thought process, his admiration of humanity, of, of animals, of creation, of life, of yep. scenery. He talks through it with us. Um, which I feel like is really relatable for me because when I'm speaking with people about anything I'm in awe of, particularly quiet beauty that I feel like Whitman is good at noticing and is also something I feel this affinity towards. Um, he just talks about it as if it's this nonchalant, obvious sense of beauty that's just been waiting for us to be observed. And he, I feel like he summarizes this too in a line. It's like really early on on page six where he says, I am the maiden companion of people all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. They do not know how immortal, but I know. And I feel like that embodies the way that I view the world. Like humanity is a wonder. And I'm constantly passing through wonders every day and observing them. And I feel like they don't notice, but I notice. And I'm in awe. You said a few very important things. This is the first real experiment in, in American poetry of free verse. So instead of, I mean, I love Frost, who we'll be talking about tonight. But instead of language that is highly formalized and regularized, Whitman's music is totally uncurtailed, uncurbed. 
we hear the voice of a person. His rhythm is the natural speaking voice. And this does, I think you're right, Isa, make the poem seem like it is of a particular person and therefore for particular people, for everyone. Um, they do not know how immortal. What, is he, what did he say? He says, um, I am the maiden companion of people, all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. They do not know how immortal, but I know. That's so good. They do not know how immortal, but I know. It's like this wonderful... Yeah, he sees the potential. So he's talking about you. You don't know how great you could become. But he does. That's why I go back to him. Emily, what would you add to this initial question about how is this poem about you? How is it about everyone, even though it's called Song of Myself? I think that when he wrote it, he didn't realize how well his poem would translate later. Because I read this now and... If I read this now without knowing who it was, without knowing the history, I would fully believe this is a contemporary poem. Oh, very good. It like embodies a lot of the things that we have today. And the thing is, even though he mentions like historical, perhaps outdated, uses outdated language, mentions yeah. outdated things, it's still something that I understand, something that I could like things have changed since then. But the language that he uses is very it's not meant to complicate you further. It's meant to help yeah. you kind of unravel yourself. I found this one line in, I believe it's 16. He just says of every hue and cast am I of every rank and religion, a farmer, mechanic, artist, gentleman, sailor, Quaker, prisoner, fancy man, rowdy, lawyer, physician, priest. Mm. And uh, honestly, I don't think he realized it, but he kind of summed up, this entire poem in those lines mm. saying that like my experience is your experience is everyone's experience. And uh, in a way it kind of testifies of like perhaps the concept of reincarnation that every human experience that he may have, we may eventually have. And I think that's why this poem relates so well and like translates in like contemporary times and has since it was published. We're not meant to see his experiences were meant to see our own reflected in his words. Wonderful. I couldn't have expressed it better. There's an enormous scope that we all, he's like, his arms are reaching wide and giving humanity this enormous hug and saying, we are, we are one, we are one species. You know, I want to back up a little bit and read the beginning of this section 16. I am of old and young of the foolish as much as the wise, regardless of others, ever regardful of others, maternal as well as paternal, a child as well as a man, stuffed with the stuff that is coarse and stuffed with the stuff that is fine. And of course, this echoes how he begins the poem. You say reincarnation, Emily, and you're not so far off. I mean, I wouldn't really say that he's advocating any particular uh, religious creed, but there is this kind of atomized, maybe slightly neoplatonic, uh, there is no death. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. It's so, so that's, the, that's how the poem begins. It's called song of myself, but he says, really my subject is this collection of atoms that we call humanity. And this collection of atoms that we call humanity is kind of fluid in this wonderfully mystical, strange way. So we share these experiences with him. We absolutely share them with him. Can I pick up on something that Isa said about this quiet beauty? Yeah, it, it might on first blush seem a strange way to describe Whitman because he he himself describes his song as, I think, a barbaric yop that he sounds yeah, from the like rooftops. Yop. 
Yeah. But you're not wrong. You're not wrong, Isa. Um, he notices things that great poets notice. So where is this section? The long section, I think it might be 15. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but. Let's go to section yes. 15. And I want to highlight, he's also very good at lists. And maybe my next question will be, that. that is my next question. I'll plant it into your brains right now. What do you make of these lists? So you can you can pick up any version of this question that you want. What do you make of these lists? Why would you write such long lists as a poet? What effect do they have on you? Well, how are they something we can imitate in our own work? That's what we'll talk about in a second here. But look at the quiet beauty that he notices in section 15. I'm going to start reading. This is maybe a third of the way into it, maybe nearly half. It's the line, the camera and plate are prepared. The camera and plate are prepared. The lady must sit for her daguerreotype. The bride unrumples her white dress. The minute hand of the clock moves slowly. It is already so good. This poor bride is either desperately excited to get married or desperately terrified and is looking at the clock hand. Yeah, quiet beauty. Things that we wouldn't normally notice. The opium eater reclines with rigid head and just opened lips. Wow. Almost as good as as what comes next. The prostitute draggles her shawl, her bonnet bobs on her tipsy and pimpled neck. I think if you can, if you can notice the pimples on a prostitute's neck and put them in a poem as something worthy of attention, as worthy of attention as the president of the United States, who appears in this poem like four lines later, you can notice anything. There's nothing that is beyond praise. There's there's nothing that's not worthy of being noticed. The prostitute draggles her shawl, her bonnet bobs on her tipsy and pimpled neck. The crowd laugh at her blackguard oaths. The men jeer and wink at each other. Miserable, I do not laugh at your oaths, nor jeer you. And then immediately, the president. So this is what I mean about the democracy. There's no difference of equality. The president and the prostitutes are equal. They get attention, you know, in this poem. Okay, so I'll shut up. Tell me about these lists. He's a very listy poet. What is the effect of this this is piling up of imagery and how do you think it's something an effect that we could translate into our own work what would you say i feel like whitman both in repetition and just in a smaller separate note throughout his poem for example like when back to call back to a moment ago when he says regardless of others ever regardful of others he's like blissfully unafraid of paradox and then when you map into these lists it's like this easy comparison like everything side by side of so many options of paradox, both in the lines being read, as well as the ways you can interpret the lines. Um, for you, and you just noted that bride, she could either be afraid of getting married or really excited to. And so again, like Whitman is displaying this sense of this lack of fear or decision not to fear life's paradoxes. Um, mm. I feel like, like even earlier on in the poem, it's almost like he's warning you to be prepared for those things and also not fear them. He says, you shall listen to all sides and filter them for yourself. Mm. he's expecting you to look at all sides of the cube um, and he lists them off for you, makes it very easy for you to access an expectation that you too, much like he or much like God, do not fear pain, sorrow, joy, depression, everything that he explores um, and every piece of humanity and human that he he sees. Yes. In a moment, I want to turn to a section that reminds me of exactly what you're saying. This kind of strange mix of I am you and you are me and he is she and I am the walrus, cuckoo, cuckoo, you know, but there's also this wonderful, I cannot, he, there's this wonderful moment. It's like, I cannot take your journey for you. You have to take it on your own. So 
kind of encouragement. There's this paradox of I am you, but also I am not you. One of the paradoxes. Another famous one is, do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself, you know? I have a poster on my bedroom wall that I've had since I was like little, because I've always loved writing. And there's a quote, there's a bunch of quotes from writers, and I cannot remember who this one is. So if you recognize it, tell me. But basically, the summary is like, we become writers because one life is simply not enough to live. Hmm. And so um, I kind of get this vibe from the list that he's saying, because and I, I feel that all the time. I think like, wow, I have just one life. There's so many things that I want to do with it. And then I'm satiated knowing that I can write about that instead. And I think that this list kind of encapsulates that. It's like, well, this is my experience, but there's so much more. And because I can't quite, I've like, I've never been a prostitute. I've never been a bride. I've never been mm-hmm. a canal boy, but I can write about them. And that's satisfying to me. And that's, that's one thought. My other thought that I had is it's tempting when you're writing and you want to make a list, you, you really want to try to encapsulate every single thing. And it can be tempting to throw in things that, while not necessary, you feel like, oh, well, I forgot to include this. I forgot to include that. I didn't include this group of people. Um, What about this? And if it were me, and I imagine almost anyone, they would probably have double what we see here. And he probably eliminated a lot. Um, And And so we see like what he has here is something that he chose to keep. And so every list that we see everything here is what he thought was necessary in telling the human story according to him what he thinks the human story should be told as what great comments yes um the uh, this is a poem of the imagination it's a poem about death and life it's a poem about america it's a poem about what it means to be a human but it's a poem that celebrates the imagination you're absolutely right the imaginative we have this ability to imagine what it would be like to be other people what would it be like to be that that prostitute? You know, that's called empathy. You know what I mean? That's called empathy. So this is a poem that reminds us that we all have this ability to put ourselves in the shoes of other people and sympathize with them and, and empathize with them and, and write about them. Um, but also this, yeah, I, I mean, we don't, this was, we're reading the 1855 edition. He spent the most, the rest of his life kind of expanding this book, Leaves of Grass. Song of Myself changed a little bit, but not so much. We can never really know exactly what this looked like in its earliest drafts. But Emily, what you say wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I was about to say, because the way that I write poetry, but how arrogant does that sound? Uh, uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, poetry works best as a kind of dis- distillation. Even a long poem like this, I think, probably works best as a distillation. So we, we see it as this kind of enormous, uncurbed yop. But yeah, it seems very curated and very strategic and I think very distilled. Perhaps he did have twice as much and is giving us the best bits. So this is this is a piece of writing advice that I would wholeheartedly encourage. If you want to write a list poem that's three pages long, start with an eight-page draft. Because then you're making sure that the best bits are the most constant, become the, the kind of, your final version becomes a kind of concentrated and distilled accretion of your best bits. So 46, section 46. I just love this. I'm not sure I'll be able to convince you to love it or (laughs) explain why I love it. I tramp a perpetual journey. My signs are a rainproof coat and good shoes and a staff cut from the woods. 
No friend of mine takes his ease in my chair. I have no chair, nor church, nor philosophy. I lead no man to a dinner table or library or exchange, but each man and each woman of you I lead upon a knoll. My left hand hooks you round the waist. My right hand points to landscapes of continents in a plain public road. Not I, not anyone else can travel that road for you. You must travel it for yourself. It is not far. It is within reach. Perhaps you have been on it since you were born and did not know. Perhaps it is everywhere on water and on land. I just want to cry when I read this because I think he's telling us you are destined for greatness, but it's not far away. It's, it's within your grasp. You can do it. In fact, maybe you're on it right now. Perhaps it is everywhere on water and on land. I just think, wow, this is so beautiful. So what is your favorite moment of this poem? And why? And we'll read it, you know, we'll read it and you'll talk about why you think it's your favorite and we'll talk about what you think it can teach you about writing your own poems. So I was going to pick number four. No, wait, sorry. It's five. It's five. Five is short-ish. Very good. So do you want to read it? Yeah. Emily, and then you can tell us why you love this and what it can teach you about how to write poetry. Okay. I believe in you, my soul. The other I am must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Lope with me on the grass, loose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music or rhyme I want, not custom or lecture, and not even the best. Only the lull I like, the hum of your valved voice. I mind how once we lay such a transparent summer morning, how you settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me and parted the shirt from my bosom bone, and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart, and reached till you felt my beard, and reached till you held my feet. Swiftly arose and spread around me the peace and knowledge that pass all of the arguments of the earth. And I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own, and I know that the Spirit of God is the brother of my own, that all the men ever born are also my brothers, and the women my sisters and lovers, and that a kelson of the creation is love, and limitless are leaves, stiff or drooping in the fields, and brown ants in the little wells beneath them, and mossy scabs of the worm fence, heaped stones, elder, mullein, and pokeweed. Okay, uh, what what a great section. Why do you love it? Well, okay, it stood out to me for a couple of reasons. Part of it is because we get a little intense in the middle part of it. It becomes kind of like a sensual moment. Oh, yeah. Which like, but it's, it's odd. It's kind of awkward. It's an awkward, sensual moment. It, and it came unexpected because it starts off as like, perhaps a love poem and an attribution to someone that you admire. And then it has a sensual bit. And then it kind of broadens to everyone is my brother. The women are my sisters and lovers. Mm-hmm. And, and we are nothing but brown ants and mossy scabs. And it's just, it has three major sections that I feel like he put into one on purpose. He tried to signify to us that they are somehow all connected. And so that's what mm. struck me initially. When I first read the poem, I was like, wow, that was, that was an adventure. We just went <laughs> everywhere with that. And then I stopped to think like, well, why did we go everywhere with that? And then the thing is, I don't really know. I don't really know why it's in three. It's like a triptych. It's like very good. He takes a moment to separate himself from like the grit and grime of the world 
which he is kind of writing about in most other sections of this poem. And he just stops to make kind of this ascension where he says, and I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own. And I know that the spirit of God is the brother of my own. And he just stops for a second, kind of idealizes, which I feel like isn't something that he normally does. And for a moment he idealizes. And I thought, you know, like when I'm with somebody that I love, this is how I feel. Like the world is idealized. Like I truly believe like, and this is how I feel about my husband. Not to get sappy, but. Oh, please do. I I truly believe that my husband came to me at a time in my life where God couldn't reach me. And so God reached me through my husband. And like, he continues to reach me every day through my husband because he's an angelic, kind, loving person. And so when I read this poem, I thought, you know what, I kind of, I'm starting to understand because I know what it's like to be with someone that you really admire. And you start to feel like, all right, your presence makes me feel holy. It makes me feel like Mm -hmm. God is in my life. And And, you know, you don't feel like that all the time. It's not like you fall in love and the world is fixed. But in this section, he's talking about how, like, loaf with me in the grass, your head athwart my hips, and you turned over upon me. Just like, he's painting a scene of being with someone and, like, the peacefulness of that. Mm. And I, I picture laying on the grass in an open field next to the ocean, being Mm -hmm. with the person you love and looking up at the sky and thinking, wow, just for a moment, my life is ideal and yeah. everything is perfect and I feel the love of God. One one reason this poem is so lasting is because Whitman shows us that it is possible. The human mind has the potential to make every moment that kind of moment. Maybe this is why we go to the little ants. So we have this moment with lovers, right? But I know that a Kelson of the creation is love. Kelson is, we don't, I mean, it's a ship, I guess. I don't, what, 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 what do I know? But back in the day, I remember looking this up and learning that it's some kind of structural girding in a ship. So love undergirds the world. Love is a support beam of the world, of creation, of all of creation. And you can find this intense love if you look at leaves. And you can find this intense love if you look at little brown ants. And the way that they, you know, those little wells that they build and the cracks of the sidewalk, he's looking at those little wells, those little dirt wells and thinking, that is love, you know, and mossy scabs of the worm fence, etc. And also your own soul. I mean, this is a weird section. He's having the sensual experience, I think, with his own soul. I believe in you, my soul, which is wonderful because who doesn't want to be capable of giving themselves that kind of pep talk? <laughs> you know, You can do it. You are beautiful. It's just him and his soul on the grass embracing each other. Wow. How weird is that? First of all, I mean, I think maybe one aspect of many great poems is weirdness. I I really do mean that weirdness. Something you said, Emily. This is weird. I never noticed before the triptych nature of this. It's a great thing to observe. So it starts with the soul, which is one, me, you know, but then there's two of them. It goes to two. But then in the third section of the poem, it goes to everyone and everything. I don't know if we want to get we- this stupid interpretation, Adam, and then Adam and Eve, and then this whole, you know, the whole human race, all of creation. That could this purposeful. It seems to me that there's some kind of purposeful, intentional structure built in there. I feel like it's kind of like a reverse nesting Russian nesting doll. You start little and you put it in a bigger one and then you put it. Yeah. In- so even though the poem looks kind of sprawling and chaotic and uh, formless. Yeah, we can find, I think, instances where there is a curated order in which he's telling us these things. Issa, what do you really want to celebrate? I can take you to a section. I've like made uh, made comments on a couple of my favorites already anyway. Um, okay. 
that I really love is 25. I'll go ahead and read it and then just make my comments. Sounds um, great. 25. Dazzling and tremendous, how quick the sunrise would kill me if I could not now and always send sunrise out of me. We also ascend dazzling and tremendous as the sun. We found our own, my soul, in the calm and cool of the daybreak. My voice goes after what my eyes cannot reach. With the twirl of my tongue, I encompass worlds and volumes of worlds. Speech is the twin of my vision. It is unequal to measure itself. It provokes me forever. It says sarcastically, Walt, you understand enough. Why don't you let it out then? Come now, I will not be tantalized. You conceive too much of articulation. Do you not know how the buds beneath are folded, waiting in the gloom, protected by frost? The dirt receding before my prophetical screams, I underlyingly causes to balance them at last. My knowledge, my life parts, it keeping tally with the meaning of things. Happiness, which whoever hears me, let him or her set out in search of this day. My final merit refuse you. I refuse putting from me the best I am. Encompass worlds, but never try to encompass me. I crowd your noisiest talk by looking toward you. Writing and talk do not prove me. I carry the plenum of proof and everything else in my face. With the hush of my lips, I confound the topmost skeptic. Wow. This just, is just wow. From beginning to end. Take it away, Isa. Uh, I'll start off by noting um, one of my favorite theories. I'm a film major. I'm referencing this again. Very good. That's <laughs> um, good. But one of my, my one of my favorite theories that was a class established theory that isn't assigned to a specific theorist, but is something that we've discussed before, um, is that media and visual constantly try to share everything and any anything with the world. They try to capture an image so that someone can see it. Mm. But uh, we have felt, or at least I personally feel, like the most reverenced moments in cinema are when you do not see a moment or a thing. Mm. Um, it's when you, the camera reveals everything and what it deliberately lets you know it chooses not to reveal, whether it be a parent's eyes or a baby's face or um, just any character's face, are the most reverenced pieces uh, in a moment. Um, and I love that Walt is acknowledging both, both the profundity of words, but also the inability of words to capture exactly everything. It says, he says, encompass worlds, but never try to encompass me. Yeah. I crowd your noisiest talk by looking toward you. Writing and talk do not prove me. And both in address of image and in words, he acknowledges here, you do know more than you realize. Acknowledge that you know these things and use your words to speak, but ultimately recognize that you cannot encompass both in the things you see and in the things you say exactly what you know and feel. Be at peace with that and carry on. I, I just love that he acknowledges it. And then it's this amplified reverence for, it, it, he's like so meta here. He's like acknowledging, hey, I'm saying stuff and, and give give heed to what I'm saying because these things deserve to be beautiful yeah. and to be recognized as such. But also acknowledge that I am, as an, am human um, and because I'm a human and because my words are imperfect and even the things I see are imperfect, know that there is more beyond what I see and say and mm. seek them out for yourself. I had never, I mean, I don't know much about film, but that's a great, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you're right. This reminds me slightly of an analogous point we made when we were reading Bishop. Uh, Bishop is a poet who knows what not to say. And it's often because she is leaving certain things off the page that the poems become so, so emotionally potent. I guess maybe this circles back to how I began this conversation. There's something indescribable about sublime beauty. It's just fundamentally indescribable. Do you not know how the buds beneath are folded, waiting in gloom, protected by frost? So you you might know, but could you express it? Could you say it? You might be able to celebrate their beauty or appreciate their beauty, but 
I also love, I refuse putting from me the best I am. You know, be great. You just must be great. Um, writing and talk do not prove me. Wow. I just, every single line of this section is wow. How wonderful is this? It says sar- sarcastically. So my speech, you know, my speech provokes me forever. That's a lesson in how to write poetry. I think let your own speech surprise you or startle you or provoke you into future speech. It says sarcastically, Walt, you understand enough. Why don't you let it out then? It's so great. It's like asking us to lean into our instinct more than we tend to. Like yes. Too much about like, if we're thinking too deliberately in our moments about like, I need to be a good poet, then we sometimes miss what can inherently be naturally good poetry if we just let our souls fall onto the page. I would always want to temper that with, we need to revise, you know, and we need to make sure that we're not falling under the assumption that the first thought we have is always the best thought. But there is, you're absolutely right, there is the importance of, I mean, this is Frost, you know, Frost is on my mind because we're reading him as well. He says, no tears in the, no, he says, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. No tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. So you have to surprise yourself. You have to make yourself cry as a poet. And that will involve a lot of risk, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of experiment, a lot of, I don't want to say going with the flow, but a lot of um, exploration. It will involve a lot of exploration, I think. Can I insert another thing here? Is that please, okay? please, please. All of this discussion also made me think of a line really early on in section two, where he says, have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? And he's, he's like initially acknowledging, again, calling the reader to attention that they're, they're reading a poem and trying to be good poets by studying him. And you mentioned earlier, Michael, like not trying to toot your own horn. And I'm, but I'm going to turn it for you and reference a poem that you wrote again dear. that I'm still oh, obsessed I'll with. Have to, I'll have to cut this that. out. Go, go ahead. You just can to... if you want. But I'll, I'll, I'll sit here and blush. Both, <laughs> just both in the way that Whitman writes, but specifically this line when he says, um, have you felt so proud to get the meaning of poems? And also the line you referenced of, I, uh, I answered that I cannot answer. You must find out for yourself. Makes me think so much of Michael's The Task. Um, both because there's a line in the task where you say, I promise you that, that this is not poetry. Uh. Again, you're calling attention to um, <laughs> yes. the medium you are using, but you're wanting to, you're asking the reader to pay attention to the meaning of the poem as opposed to the medium itself. And then the last couple lines of your poem are all I know. Okay. I don't know if you'll find me again at the end, if there is one or how soon you'll get to lie down. All I know is your task is immeasurably great. It cannot be accomplished, yet it cannot be avoided. Persist, little heart, straighten up shoulders, move legs, go forward, bear yourself over the ruinous world. And again, Michael is tapping into Whitman's practice of leaning into paradox and addressing what you don't know and letting the reader acknowledge the things they know for themselves and calling attention to the, the medium we're using, but that there's more beyond the medium that is meant to be megaphoned by the poem itself. <laughs> Can you do me a favor? Can you do me and everyone listening a favor and reread those lines that I wrote? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> I, I promise I'm doing this for a reason. Just reread those. I don't know if you'll find me again at the end, if there is one, or how soon you'll get to lie down. All I know is your task is immeasurably great. It cannot be accomplished, yet it cannot be avoided. Persist, little heart. Straighten up shoulders. Move legs. Go forward. Bear yourself over the ruinous world. Who am I trying to be? It's so obvious who I'm trying to be. Go to section 52. Mm -hmm. And I quote, 
I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean. But I shall be good health to you nevertheless, and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you. Uh, this, this leads to a very important question. How exactly are we supposed to imitate Whitman? This is old poetry. I mean, I can't remember which of you at the beginning made this point. That it's not, I think it was Emily. It sounds fresh. The language sounds modern and fresh and contemporary. But you also acknowledge, I mean, there are parts that don't, of course. Even though the language sounds fresh, he says things. Can I just read a couple of my uh, favorite uh, lines in section six to illustrate this? He says things that I think we sometimes don't think that we're allowed to say in poems. For example, so he's this wonderful section about the grass. A child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. This is section six. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. And then there's this wonderful list of metaphors, the flag of my disposition, the green, the handkerchief of the Lord, the uncut hair of graves, a uniform hieroglyphic, etc., etc. It is very dark to be from the white heads of old mothers. So he's thinking about the grass that is covering graves and the people underneath the grass in these graves. So he starts thinking about death and he says, what do you think has become this? I mean, these are lines. <laughs> this is poetry. What do you think has become of the young and old men? And what do you think has become of the women and children? They are alive and well somewhere. The smallest sprout shows there is really no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it and cease the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward. Nothing collapses. And to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. So my question is, how exactly, I mean, hardly gets better than this, but how exactly are we supposed to imitate this? How, because I think we're, I just want to make sure that my question is clear. We're told in poetry classes, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. I emphasize imagery, imagery, concrete, tactile imagery, appeal to the senses, appeal to the senses. And yet here I am announcing that my favorite moments of this poem are, there really, there is really no death. All goes onward and outward and nothing collapses. These are abstractions. These are grandiose truth claims in the most abstract language. And I'm saying it's my favorite part. How can we learn how to do this in our own poetry without falling on our faces? I will now shut up. I think what's what Whitman really accomplishes in all of his poetry is that he's never trying to impress you. Like he's never writing a poem because he wants to be it just He's not looking to write a phenomenal poem. He's looking to give you the honest representation of what world. It's like he has an idea he wants to tell us, and he's just telling it to us in the clearest language possible. There really is no death. He's not trying to be poetic. He is trying to give us, um, I don't want to say the facts. He's, he's trying to be as clearly as possible. He's trying to say what he actually means as clearly as he possibly can. That's one piece of writing advice I get from Whitman. I have it on my wall, so I could pull it off if I wanted to, but it's a C.S. Lewis quote where he basically acknowledges, um, do not seek to be original, seek to tell the truth. You will, be, you will naturally be original by 
Yeah, he addresses that. And I feel like both uh, in Whitman's acknowledgement of death, acknowledgement of everything really in this poem, there's also a line in uh, section 48 where he says, I have said that the soul is not more than the body. And I have said that the body is not more than the soul. And nothing, not God, is greater to one than one's self is. And I feel like here, where at least especially for us, because we come from a space that's pretty uh, religious theology oriented, we have this fear of a lot of things, fear of God in good ways, um, but fear sometimes of tapping into those, those things that we don't know. And Whitman here is displaying this unabashed sense of, I don't fear what I don't know. He has no xenophobia. He has, he's a very, he's very welcome. And he's like not afraid to acknowledge that he doesn't know as well. But in saying, and nothing, not God, is greater to one than oneself, I feel like that's something that I maybe a couple of years back might have been afraid to acknowledge. But okay. the reality is that if I did not exist, what role would God play in my life if I had none, no life to live in the first place? So I, as a human being, am essential to this process before God can be pertinent to me in the first place. And so Whitman is unafraid to tap into like some sort of like crisis modes and, and existential concepts that we perhaps may withhold. Yes, I want to hear from Emily. Emily, if she has some follow-ups, but just to kind of uh, re-summarize what's been put on the table here, um, how do you say, how do you make abstract truth statements in poetry that aren't sentimental or cliche? Um, you talk clearly, there really is no death. It's not a cryptic line. We know exactly what he means. The fact, uh, C.S. Lewis, tell the truth, tell the truth. This can sometimes be refreshing. Because so much poetry is kind of dancing around the truth. So just, so just to be bold, tell the truth and also be brave. Yeah, I guess be bold. Be brave in the kinds of truth that you want to tell. Tell truths in poems as clearly as you can that are true, but that maybe people don't think are true so that they in themselves are somewhat startling. Make bold, courageous, true, clear, abstract statements. What else could we add? I feel like when I'm writing poetry, I get caught up a lot in impressing people. And I want to show like, wow, look at me. I use big words. I make this incredible metaphor. I'm doing this wonderful job of like showing you this world. And then I, I stop and I step away and I look at it a couple of days later. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a sellout. This oh, is I see. Yeah. appealing to the masses. And that is like the opposite of what any artist with integrity wants to do. You know, you don't want to be you're not in the ad agency. You're trying to make something authentic. And Very so good. I'm writing poetry. I catch this a lot, which I think Whitman does an awesome job of catching himself, if he even ever did that, and saying, I'm not here to impress you or me or anyone. I am here to just be. My poems yes. just are. That's it. What great art does, when we're in the presence of great art, what do I know about great art? I already, I'm, I already annoy, I'm annoying myself. I'll keep going. We are in the presence of something that is comfortable being what it is. You're exactly right, Emily. When we are in the presence of great art, we are in the presence of something that isn't trying too hard to dazzle us or impress us. Maybe it does, but it's not trying hard. Keats in this, in a letter has this wonderful moment where he says, we, we would distrust flowers if they leapt from the bushes onto the roads and said, dote upon me. I am a violet. Praise me. I am a primrose. You know, flowers. Are beautiful, but they don't rush up to you saying, I am beautiful, I am beautiful, I am beautiful. This is, I think, a fundamental characteristic of all great art. It is what it is, and it's comfortable being what it is. And if it it, it doesn't try to appeal to everyone, it it, it 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 strives to be the best version of what it wants to be. And like a flower, 
it lets people come up to it who want to come up to it and it doesn't sweat it when people just pass by. How are such works of art made? What does that look like in the process of composition? How can we trust ourselves? Because we make mistakes as artists. So it's, it's, it's more complicated than saying, oh, just trust yourself or just satisfy yourself. Because sometimes what satisfies you is bad. How can we pull off this weird magic trick? Any thoughts about this? I'll throw one out there. Yes. Um, I just thought of that. This is, this is a cheesy reference, but I thought of that photographer in Walter Mitty who says the line, beautiful things don't ask for attention. Oh, very good. I feel like Russ's poet. Um, maybe there's that uh, initial rub against where we're like, yeah, they, they don't ask for attention, but we're trying to draw attention to them. So I feel like the thing that Whitman accomplishes really well in his pieces is that he seems like he's writing for no one else but himself. Okay. Uh, as if he's trying to remember and document these moments with his own recognition and his own his own remembrance. So I feel like starting off a poem, although it will evolve, starting off a poem with a sense of, I am going to be blissfully and utterly honest because the only person I'll have to be accountable to is myself. Yes. And I'm letting it form from there. But but that doesn't mean that you should be easy to please. Remember, I refuse putting from me the best I am. And there's this yeah. other, other wonderful sentence that begins section 44 where he says, I think this is a joke. I laugh every time I get here. It is time to explain myself. Let us stand up. <laughs> like we're in church or something. It's like now the sacred part is beginning. The part where I explain myself, we all have to stand up. So he treats himself as someone sacred, someone who you have to work hard to please. So he has high standards for himself, and that's all he cares about. I feel like I have not talked about the form that he uses. And yeah. I just want to like, because the meaning is all wonderful. But what I appreciate about the form is it has zero pattern. From one section to another, it's pretty much never the same. Okay. But he still uses a lot of poetic devices. Um, like in the one that I cited, number five, if you go back and look at it, the last eight lines all start with and I or Excellent. and, 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 and. And that's not common throughout the rest of it. And like the list, not all the poems are lists. Yep. Not all the poems are like, some of them are vague. Some of them are specific. Some of them he uses metaphor. Some of them he doesn't. And I think what I liked about this was that his, he had a commitment to nothing and his form, like it's obvious he knows how to use literary devices. Yeah. He really does. And I feel like maybe he sat down and said, okay, for this section, I'm doing mm. this for this section, I'm doing that, you know? And it's like little art pieces. I can write like this. I can write like mm. that. I can write like this. I can write like that. That, that's what I kind of loved about it is I feel like with a lot of poets, they have a specific style for what is popular for them. And with this, I, I never feel like I'm reading the same poet again. Like that's a great could be written by someone different. And I would add parallelism. So ana the anaphora is when he, be, he begins this, a successive series of lines or clauses with the same word or phrase. That's anaphora. He's very good at that. He uses it from time to time. Also parallelism. I celebrate myself and sing myself what I assume you shall assume is kind of back and forth. But he, there's variation. So he has these techniques, but then every section gives us a new pattern, a new size, a new length. Excellent. Thank you both for such a great chat. I had such a great time. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, have, a good, have a good evening. Bye. Bye. The writing prompt today is quite simple. I want you to try to mimic in a poem of your own or in a free write of your own, a draft of your own, 
Whitman's use of parallelism. He gets this parallelism from the Bible, maybe the Psalms in particular. The Lord is my shepherd. Pause, I shall not want. This kind of back and forth. Try this on your own. It doesn't really matter what subject matter it is. This is just an exercise in which you're trying to develop this new kind of sonic rhythmical muscle. So just write a series of lines that are, that are organized on this principle, this principle of A and then B. Inhalation, exhalation. I celebrate myself and sing myself. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A series of lines that are organized with a kind of central pause. Sometimes perhaps the two clauses that surround this pause can be asymmetrical in length, a long one followed by a short one, a short one followed by a long one. Variation is important, of course. But try to fill a page with these and see where it takes you. That's it for now. Coming up soon here, I'll be chatting with a couple of you about Shakespeare's play As You Like It and discussing what we can learn as poets from this play. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great poet. (laughs) 